Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Join me for insightful conversations and interviews about our cattle industry. Here we discuss the shared struggles and successes of this life we've chosen as ranchers. Here, we seek to learn from the experts around us, eager to grow and challenge the accepted. Here we are, the Black Hereford Chronicles. Quick sale report for you on the Ipsen cattle sale, which was a couple of weeks ago. They sold three Black Hereford bulls, averaging just over $4,400. And then what I'll call an F1 plus bull that was 59.5% that sold for $5,200. He sold two percentage females, averaging $3,400, and two F1 females, that averaged $7,150. Today's episode features Michael Sherman of Sherman Beef Cattle. Michael has a genuinely unique approach to our industry and a fascinating business model. But what I find even more interesting is his devotion to collecting the data he needs for continuous improvement in his operation and the way he's getting that information. Sherman Beef Cattle is about more than raising bulls. They've incorporated other sectors into their business to find success, and I think that's a really important piece of this breed puzzle. The registered business cannot and should not exist on an island. If we want to survive, we must be forging relationships with other sectors of our industry. But to do that, we have to know what we are offering them. In order to go to the cow-calf operator and say, hey, you should check out Black Herefords. I really think they can offer a lot in your herd. But heterosis and black hide and all those things that we know we bring to the table might not be enough. We need data to back up our claims. Sometimes that looks like EPDs and performance data. But what else can we do to prove our breed? Well, we can start collecting data on things like feed efficiency and carcass traits. We've been doing that in our own operation here for a couple of years now. We've entered our commercial calves sired by our Black Hereford and Angus bulls into a feed test and consistently win the yield grade. That data helps us prove to our buyers what our bulls are capable of. Michael is proving to his buyers what his bulls are capable of through bull tests. There's a lot of options out there for data that both help improve the breed and your own operation, but it's on us to push for it. Gastel Family Farms believes in the future of Black Hereford cattle. Their goal is to be a leading source of superior seed stock for the industry, producing exceptionally sound and genetically proven cattle. Three Gastel Bowls will be available on April 1st at the Source for Genetic Excellence sale in Tennessee, and you'll definitely want to take a look. The Gastel family truly is committed to breeding world-class Black Herefords. If you want to learn more about their program and breeding philosophy or the bulls they'll have available next month, Bill would love to chat with you. You can email him at bgaes. T-E-L at live.com or give them a call at 304-268-9121.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Black Hereford Chronicles. I've got ABHA breeder here, Michael Sherman, and we are going to talk a lot about his operation and some of the unique things that he's doing. So before we dive into that, I would just love to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're at and how you got into this industry. Okay. Well, to begin with, thanks for having me. It's an honor to sit down here this evening and uh, talk to you about our operation. Um, you know, I still feel that we're relatively new to the Black Hereford breed. Uh, we've been producing Black Herefords now. Uh, this will be our fifth year, I guess you can say. We started out a little slow. I was a registered Red Hereford breeder uh, for many years there. And um, I've had them since I've been in college. And, you know, we're kind of out here in no man's land. We're at we're in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, so we're pretty far removed from the whole Black Hereford um, world. You know, when I first started looking into it, uh, they always intrigued me as a breed um, because, you know, we're in an area of the country where high color matters. Uh, you know, if you take cattle to the sale barn and they're not black, if you're not able to market those genetics as genetics, uh, you're in trouble, okay, with the red hides. So I believe I started looking into black Herefords about five years before I actually bought a black Hereford. Uh, the reason was, was I was trying to make a go with red Herefords, but it was easy to see that, you know, we were not the size operation or near had the money available to us to really make a splash in the red Herefords. Um, it seemed like it was a, like a rich man's game when it came to genetics there. So, you know, I. I became intrigued with the black herfords. I told some breeders I was going to do it. Everyone thought, you know, I was just going to crossbreds, you know, and it was, why would you do that to your cattle? But I honestly searched for a bull for five years before I made the selection on um, a certain bull. And he had what I wanted. And so I made the purchase on that bull. Um, and, you know, I bought a cow or two then as well. And it just kind of progressed from there. It was more of a, dip your toes in mentality, then just jump full into the pool and convert everything the first year. Uh, our first couple of years, we did some performance testing with red Herefords and black Herefords together. And it was pretty easy to see right from the get go, um, you know, what breed we needed to concentrate on right out of the gate. So, you know, that kind of gives you a little insight on why I converted and when I converted and, you know, how easy it was to make, um, genetic improvement in just this five-year span, you know, I feel that in five years, we were able to accomplish in the Black Herefords what, you know, I may have never accomplished in the Red Herefords, to tell you the truth. Um, well, I love that you took it back to that there is a red height of discount. Yeah, I had someone for the first time ever actually argue with me, a guy in Kansas of all places, that there was no such thing last week. And so I went to the sale barn this last week, we sold our own calves. And I thought, am, am I missing something? Because every time we've sold and sure enough, as those calves went through the ring, you know, the all red ones took a 15 cent discount, the Hereford looking calves, because, you know, they're all a mix at this point, but the ones that really have the Hereford look were taken 40 cent discounts. So, you know, I know that sometimes people get frustrated when we talk about the red height at discount, but this is a thing. It is a knowing thing. This is a market we exist in. 
And it's okay to say, I'm not going to accept that anymore. And what am I going to do to limit the number of discounts that I can potentially be hit with? Mm-hmm. I also, I, I just have to say, I love that you took your time getting into it, you know, and really thought that through because sometimes I think we get so excited to make a big genetic change that we haven't researched it and we haven't thought it all the way through. And you can wind up in a big mistake if you haven't. So I love that you spent so much time researching it and thinking it through because you had options. You know, a lot of people have asked, well, how come you don't choose Sumatol? That's black. You know, but I love when I hear that this was a thoughtful decision. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, one not to be made lightly because, you know, um, I bought my farm from my grandparents and I have three sons and, you know, I don't have any brothers or anything. So, you know, I'm trying to set them up for the future. So regardless of which path I take, you know, I'm not only looking ahead to my future, I'm predicting ahead where the, where do they need to be in 20 years, you know, cause the steps we take now is going to impact their decisions later. So I'm just curious, were your grandparents, were they Hereford breeders as well or? Um, so the area I lived in, they were, they used to be dairy farmers. That's what I was yeah. wondering actually, yeah. Pennsylvania. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they were a dairy farm. Uh, we had a, a really bad flood back in the seventies that basically annihilated our Valley. And, um, at that point they sold the cattle, the dairy cattle. And we went to, to marketing a few head of beef annually, like, you know, under 20. Um, and I would say I was probably in, uh, uh, it would have been about my junior year of high school or so. I was begging for some Herefords. So my grandfather had found a small group of Hereford heifers and we bought them and, you know, and then I was able to buy my first heifer, registered heifer on my own. And when I was a senior in high school and it kind of, you know, one head turned into 10, 10 turned 20. And, you know, and we got to where we're at today, but it was, like I said, it was just a love of the breed and then, you know, developing it and wanting to, make the best genetic advancements I could possibly make, you know, in my small operation to try to make a bigger change. You know, that's kind of what we were after. So you've got such a commitment to that genetic advancement. Let's talk a little bit about some of the tools that you're using to gauge where you're at and how to make that improvement. All right. Um, so my, um, my main tool that I use, uh, for, um, genetic testing and, you know, evaluation and just comparison is, uh, performance testing of my bulls and heifers. Okay. Um, I've been performance testing now for 13 years and it's, it's a unique test that I send my animals to, because when I say performance testing, I'm not testing on my farm. I'm relying on third party, independent, impartial verification of data. Okay. And performance testing is one of those things where you can be humbled pretty quickly, okay? Because there is no hiding of the data. If you send the wrong animals, that is out there for everyone to see. And it's not, um, you know, they, they do not skew the data and they do not hide the poor performers. So, you know, you really have to plan ahead. You have to know what these cattle are going to do and they have to be proven. And because, you know, when I, when I'm posting the data, you know, many of you have seen it on the Hereford sites, I'm showing all the black Herefords I've taken, you know, I'm not taking out the 
one poor performed or got sick, you know, I'm trying to send the most uniform group I can send and, you know, just get the data out there, collect the data. You know, we've been doing it for 13 years. I've sent probably over 50 bulls to that test station now. Okay. Um, now the black Hereford division, so surprisingly I've wanted each year. Why? Because I'm the only one that takes black. <laughs> yeah. You sound like my kids at our County fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm undefeated in the black. Herford, <laughs> we should get you a buckle just for that. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go back a little further, um, I was five out of eight in my red Herford testing. So I, you know, and there was competition. The first year I tested would have been 2000 and I believe it was 10. You know, I, I had some red Herefords. I wanted to do this and it, it was the perfect year to do it because I had bought a bull from Colorado that everyone told me wouldn't work in Pennsylvania. You know, and when you only have, you know, 15 head of brood cows, it seems kind of crazy to go to Colorado to buy a bull. But I followed this uh, one rancher's philosophy. So I bought a bull out there. It wasn't an expensive bull. I think it was a $2,000 bull. Okay. I brought that $2,000 bull home and I knew I had good cows. I mean, it was an $800 cow I bred it to. Okay. So, you know, I was, I was in the Hereford circle. I told some breeders at a sale and I'll never forget this because this put more drive in me than anything that could have possibly happened on my farm. You know, I, I was at this sale and, you know, guys were asking me about my cattle and they were some big name breeders. And, um, I said, I was going to put one on test and they asked me who it was out of and they laughed. Um, you know, they found it amusing that I would take a $2,000 bull, breed it to an $800 cow and think I could compete against embryo transfer dams and all AISR calves. You know, there was, I think, seven Hereford bulls in there that year. And I took my one. And um, at the end of the 112-day test, there was one bull that got the plaque. And it wasn't the ones that were out of the $5,000 dams. The $800 dam won the bull test. And, you know, that right there was something that showed me you know, you don't have to go out and spend on the best genetics if you can buy the right cow, you know, and that animal there, she was just a really efficient, moderate framed, easy keeping cow that had the amazing phenotype, but her EPDs, they were probably in the lowest, I don't know. <laughs> 2% of the Hereford breed. I mean, she had nothing on paper that would make her a rock star. But when mated to that bull that corrected all her deficiencies was what we needed to have a superior product in the end. And was my bull the um, highest seller? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, he got blown away. Okay. I walked up there, got a plaque. And, uh, you know, I honestly, I think the plaque was worth more than the bull at that point, you know, because <laughs> we had a hard time getting him love in the ring because people thought it was a fluke. You know, here's this guy that doesn't have many cattle. You know, there are two no names on the pedigree. It had to be a fluke. He shouldn't have won. Okay. So then, you know, you get a little confidence. You bring two the next year. You start bringing three. Well, then next thing you know, 
we had a four year run in a row where I had to top indexing Hereford, you know, and really it wasn't close. And, you know, people are bringing more bulls and it's bull testing is not something I do to win the test. It's to check my um, contemporaries, one, to make sure I'm creating a uniform product, you know, because as the bulls go through this test, all the variables are taken out. And um, it also lets me gauge, you know, how are my genetics compared to genetics around Pennsylvania and their surrounding states? You know, if, if we're finding we're falling behind, then maybe I'm going to up some, some stuff in my genetic selection. But um, I found if you have a product that is consistent, you know, you, you, a lot of you guys have seen the performance data on Thunderstruck. Uh, he was a bull I bought. Um, he's a 64% sire that really never received a lot of notoriety. His calves are just absolutely amazing. I mean, they're 82% with my red Herefords and, you know, we're outperforming the, um, traditional Herefords by almost three, over three quarters of a pound this year. Okay. And that has been consistent each year that we've done this. Um, you know, why didn't I switch it up to, um, you know, some of the hotter bulls in the breed right now that you see in the magazine, because what I have is working and I'm still producing a quality product that is in demand from cattlemen, you know, and I, I don't necessarily go out, um, you know, this past year, um, that bull had left the, left the operation and, you know, um, I have a semen tank. There's a lot of semen in there. You know, I synced up a dozen cows and 10 of them got thunderstruck when I could have used anything, you know? <laughs> um, so, and I have how many years of like four years of calf crop out of thunderstruck. So, I mean, that's just something I've seen through performance testing that it allows me to identify sires I want to use because I can compare the data to the red Hereford sires that are currently on test. And a lot of those are the higher um, recognized sires. And it just wasn't something I, Felt I needed to chase after at this point because you know if, if it's working until it stops working then you know we can continue because each year they do actually improve a touch and get a little better so um you know next year we'll see what we take next year but um but it, it is a lot of fun performance testing and it you know I think it gives a lot of um validation to our breed um when you know, the first black Herford I took to the bull test, everyone thought it was a unicorn, you know, everyone wanted to come see it, but it was one of those deals where no one wanted to take it home, you know? Yep. <laughs> and honestly, it was one of the best bulls that went through that test, you know, and in the second year, you know, it, it gathered a little more acceptance. The third year, everyone's like, wait a second, look at these bulls. Now this, this past year, the black Herefords, I think were the number two high selling breed on average at the bull test, you know? So I went from struggling to sell $2,000 red herper bulls to now doubling my money and consistently averaging around $4,000 for the black herper bulls. So, so what data are you getting back from the bull test? So the bulls, when they're out there, they're put on, um, you know, a developmental ration. We're not looking for seven pounds a gain or anything like that. Um, that would be a good way to break a bowl down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could get some awesome numbers, but <laughs> it would not sustain a, you know, a bull for a lifetime. Um, 
So they're shooting for about three pounds a day. Okay. And the, the three pound a day um, number they came up with because they want to develop these bulls and they want to not push them too hard, but they want to give them enough to show that the, let them express their genetics. Essentially it's what they're doing. So we're getting, you know, a weight every 28 days, they weigh these down. We get all the ultrasound data back. We get um, feed efficiency data through the grow safe feeders. Um, we're getting scrotal circumference, pelvic measurements, um, pretty much the full gamut of data to allow the buyer to make an educated decision. You know, does he want to focus on this or that? You know, and the, it gives the buyer so much more confidence in the product because they don't have to guess. You know, there's actual physical data in the catalog saying that, you know, if you had some trouble calving and you want to spread out pelvic size on the, the heifers you're retaining, you know, this one has um, a 200 measurement. Well, this one only has a 120. If my heifers are having problems year after year, I want to start looking towards that 200 bull instead of the 120, you know. Um, I love that you brought that up because I think when we start talking about feed test bulls, people tend to assume that this is all going to be very terminal minded. And right now there's, seems to be this idea out there that you can only be terminal or maternal, that we can't mix the two and try to create an animal that excels at both, which to me is nonsense. Of course we can be working to achieve both. And so I think it's important that people understand that even when you're pushing feed tests, you're also still considering those other maternal traits that are going to matter as far as calving and things like that. Yeah. And that's something we see year in and year out when it comes to, you know, how they're appreciated in the ring. Now the black Herefords, you know, I don't have, they only sell the top 50% of bulls. So when you only have five on test, you know, I'm either getting two or three in sale, depending on how they do. Okay. But the, the Angus, we'll, you, we'll pick on them a little bit. Um, you know, they typically sell 60 Angus, okay? So they've had some Angus put up some very, very high numbers and scan them really like through the roof when it comes to ultrasound data. Your highest selling Angus, your highest selling Perford, your highest selling Red Angus is not the front end of the sale. It is a bull that's probably in the lower two thirds of the sale that has the maternal characteristics people are looking for. It's got an acceptable birth weight. It's got calving ease. It's your total package bull. But you, in a feed test, you usually don't find that till lower two thirds of the breed. You know, and they'll be knocking bulls off. You know, two, three, four thousand dollars, and all of a sudden you hit bull number fifty out of a sixty string, and it brings eight grand. You know, that's the bull you want to breed with. You know, you don't want the cow killer that won it that has you know four feet across in the front shoulders and had the birth weight, you know, of 130 pounds, you know, yes, he did great on test and yes, the man got a plaque for it, but did he deserve the plaque? That's to be debated. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to um, be spending a lot of time pulling calves going yeah. that route. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is a really neat thing to see as well. Um, so, so yeah, so we're getting all that data. Your operation, I like to remind everybody that we're in the beef business. You know, we hear a lot of stuff about, uh, I'm in the cattle business. I'm in the livestock business. I'm not in the beef business. And I understand that people kind of get driven to that point because of frustration with the packers and things. But no, really, at the end of the day, we are all in the beef business. And you 
I think, do an excellent job of highlighting that and really bringing all of those pieces together. So will you tell us a little bit about how this data impacts the beef side of your business? Okay. Um, well, another reason I went with the Black Herefords and my choice was I was noticing the selections I was making and the Herefords were making great phenotypes. We weren't producing very good beef. <laughs> I mean, when it came to ultrasound data, it was a little lacking. Um, yeah. And, you know, I would look at the number. I'm like, man, uh, I didn't know that was possible to get an IMF that low. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, so it, it became very apparent that we had to make change when it comes to, um, you know, the IMF, especially. Um, my first, one of my first jobs out of college, I was a USDA beef creator and I looked at approximately 2000 carcasses a day for five years. So I have an appreciation of carcasses and carcass data and, you know, I would have fun with it. You know, I would look at cattle live and then tag them and then go look at carcasses two days later. And, um, you know, the ones you would think would be primed, they were end up select. And then this thing that looks like it was going to drop over dead in the corner of the pen, it's a like super prime, you know, there was no rhyme or reason. It seemed like, um, but you know, the data allows me to, you know, identify whether or not these bulls are actually producing the kind of carcasses I want them to produce in the long run. Um, so that, that, the, that's what makes it possible is just getting the data and having something concrete in my hand, not a guess. And it shortens up the window too, because, you know, we're, we're scanning these bulls when they're about a year old, we don't have to wait till they produce that calf, take it 18 months to kill it. And then find out three years from now, we made the wrong decision. We can find out we're making the wrong decision before we make the decision essentially. Well, and that was one of the things we learned when we started ultrasounding was, and you know, my husband's fifth generation, we've been doing this a long time, but the first time we had that ultrasound tech out, some of those bulls that we thought, I mean, he's a beast. He's going to be huge. This is going to be crazy high numbers would get in the shoot and they'd put that camera on there. And it was sometimes shocking. And we realized you really cannot phenotypically look at an animal and judge that carcass as much as we thought you could. Mm -hmm. And so it's just been eye opening. Yeah. I mean, it all, it all comes down to genetics, you know, not every Herford and or black Herford is created equal on the genetic side of things. You really, if, if you really want to get into it, you have to study, okay, when this animal was turned black a couple of generations ago, what was that Angus line? You know, what was the, what were their characteristics? You know, how did it match up with the Herefords and how did it carry forward? You know, you, you have to look at the entire picture not just necessarily what the EPD tells you it should be. You know, you have to dive into it a little deeper and look for, you know, the phenotype, the background. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to, to make that decision because I didn't feel I could find what I wanted right out the gate. So it just took a little bit of time and, then, you know, and we got there. Um, our bulls right now are, you know, they're, they're getting weighed next Monday um, for the three quarters of the way done. You know, if you look at the halfway point, our bulls this year, they're 4.04 pounds a day down to 3.21 on five bulls. So, you know, they're within eight tenths of a pound. Okay. Um, they're not extreme, but, you know, I, I mentioned that they're shooting for a 3.0 pound gain. And my lowest one is 3.2. 
the um, the black herefords currently on test are only trailing the Angus and the Simag. Okay, we're currently averaging better than the Hereford, Red Angus, Semitol, Limousine, Shorthorn, all the other breeds. Um, you know, the black Herefords are are right there, and they've been right there for the past three years. You know, we're within the top two or three um, breeds, and that's you know, this is like I said, the third year of having more than one bull there. Um, so it, it's really creating a buzz, I think, with the sale attendees because you know, they're seeing this consistent data coming out of the black herpers and there's not variation. They're all similar. Now I wouldn't be able to do that if I had a cow herd that was all over the place on genetics. That means the cows are genetically similar as well. Well, I'll tell you, we've seen something similar in our commercial herd since we've been running black herfords on our commercial cows. Our calf crop has consistently gotten more consistent to sound redundant, you know, we've really seen a narrowing of our window as far as weights and frame size and all that. So it's great to hear because, you know, it was a genuine worry of mine getting into Black Herefords. It's such a new breed. You know, we we tend to have big pendulum swings and and a lot of variation within the breed itself. So I was a little worried about that, but the consistency really has been been exceptional for us. And it's great to hear that you figured out how to work that into your herd too, because it, it matters a lot at the end of the day. Consumers, whether somebody is purchasing, you know, fat calves or if they're purchasing feeder steers, they need a consistent animal that they know they can rely on. So that narrow window, congratulations. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I feel that's one thing where, you know, as a breed, we could kind of look at a little bit. We recently had some visitors up from Tennessee to buy some cattle, you know, and one of the greatest compliments someone can give you is, you know, when my herd's kind of boring to look at, to tell you the truth, they all look the same. Perfect. So when you have to go through them and, you know, and we're looking, we're evaluating cattle and they ask you if they've seen her before, you know, that tells you that the herd's where it needs to be because, you know, they're not someone's not jumping out to them the second they walk out there. You know, it's more of a, Hey, you know, this one looks like that one. And next thing you know, they all look the same. And if they're at the feed bunk and it looks like you can lay a level across their backs, you know, I just find a, the consistency has allowed me to be more successful in the, the testing programs because I'm not, you know, I don't have extremes in the herd. So I'm not going to have extreme swings in the data, which is going to skew the data by any means. Um, you know, when, when we have people come in to look at cattle, um, you know, I had a gentleman one time said, I want to come in and I want to buy your best cow. Uh, I said, yeah, not a problem. He's like, what's the price on her? And I go, it depends who picks her. And he goes, that, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, what do you mean? Who picks her? And I was like, well, if I pick my best cow, I'll sell her to you right now for 4,000 bucks. He goes, well, what if I pick her? I go, I'll sell it to you for two grand. And he's like, that's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. I go, I know you're not going to pick her. <laughs> so it's not like I have no risk in it. So, so we did a little, um, we did a fun exercise in which I, I was like, well, this will be fun. If he had some time, you know, I grabbed a clipboard. I had a clipboard. He had a clipboard. And, you know, we looked at 20 different cows and we ranked them one to 20. He handed me his clipboard at the end of it. 
And I said, you want to give me 2000? I was like, I'll sell you any of your top of your list for 2000 bucks. You can load up the truck. We'll we'll go get them right now. (laughs) And the thing was, he was selecting the animals that phenotypically looked great, but he didn't follow it through all the way. He wasn't looking at the big picture. He had no idea what the calves looked like. He had no idea what the performance data looked like. He honestly selected my worst cow. You know, I mean, that cow was on the call list. She, and I was like, you don't want that cow. And he's like, she's, she's a beautiful cow. I go, she doesn't milk as like the other ones. You know, there was peppers in the herd beater that year in the same contemporary group. And I go, you know, you, you have to look at the data when available because the data is going to tell you and like the, the behind the scenes story and really what, what has been the history on that cow? You know, the performance data we use, every one of my cows is an employee. When you live where I live and everyone wants to raise houses and you're trying to raise cattle, you know, the, the land values are so high. We don't have room for poor performers. So every one of those cows on my operation is essentially an employee. Okay. And I'm using the data that they give me each year to decide whether or not that employee needs fired. Okay. Without, you know, testing and um, metrics like that, I would have a hard time because my eyes would keep coming back to that fancy cow too and be like, well, let's just give her another year. I don't care that she weaned off a 300 pound calf. When you, next thing you know, you have this other one that, you know, looks like, you know, she's maybe having some issues. Well, she was a two-year-old that weaned off a 650 pound calf and bred back first. You know, that was my number. That was honestly, that was an actual example of the, the cow that was number one on my list. She looked a little rough. She was a two-year-old. Her uh, bull calf ratioed 122% when ratioed against the entire herd, you know, as a first calf heifer, and she was the first one to read back. That was my number one cow. I want to pause the show for a minute here and talk to you about Peter's Farm Black Herefords in Hamptonville, North Carolina. Peter's Farm is all about hardy bulls, docile cows, and sturdy calves. They believe in making black Herefords the breed of the future and their role in it. Peter's Family Farm started with F1s and has built a great herd of cattle, always striving for constant growth and improvement. Lucky us, they've got bulls and heifers available right now, including consigned in the Source for Genetic Excellence sale in Tennessee on April 1st. Head on over to Peter's Farm Black Herefords, all one word, dot com, and check out what they've got going and what animals are available. You can also give Bobby a call at 704-928-8458. So I have to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole with you there, though, because I think you and I are very like-minded on the need for consistency. Do you get a little squeamish when you have one that ratios that high? Yeah, a little bit. You're trying to figure out, is it, is she that much better, you know, um, Um. (laughs) here versus, you know, why did it work so good? Kind of, you know, and that cow in particular. Howdy there. I'm Matt McKinley with the burning daylight podcast. If you ever wanted to make a podcast, well, Spotify has got a platform that makes that lets you make one super easily. And then you can distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for for podcasters. And here's how it works. Spotify for podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from the phone or computer. 
Uh, so no matter what uh, your setup was like, you can uh, start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And uh, if you like my show, Fence Post Politics with my buddy Aaron, that's the place to watch it because it's all video all the time. And we uh, like we share videos, we comment on videos, we share news articles and uh, and funny memes. So um, it's pretty cool. Um, and also, if you want to take your conversations to uh, with your fans to the next level, uh, your question and answer, answer and polls are the best way to get them talking. You can attach that to your your podcast there and, and you get your you get you know, valuable interactions with your fan, your fans. And, uh, with Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. And that's, uh, that, that is true. Um, supposed to do a testimonial here. Um, but anyways, this is the the podcast I use or the podcast uh, host that I use. I like Spotify. They're uh, they're very good on just letting you do your thing uh, with uh, with no catch to it. Uh, there's a good reason why Joe Rogan hosts podcasts on Spotify, and, and this is uh, this is a great way to get started if you if you have ever thought about starting a podcast. This is where I would send anybody to go. Um, <clears throat> best thing you can do is just download the Spotify for podcasters app, or you can go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. And yeah, if you've ever thought about just doing a podcast or if you're tired of paying a monthly service that, uh, doesn't seem to do much for you, Spotify podcasters is your spot. So, uh, go to spotify.com slash podcasters or download the app today. Another cow that you cannot pick out of the herd right now, every year, year in, year out, you know, that cow is just knocking it out of the park. So if you dive into her genetics, I, she was out a, of a Hereford um, bull that was pretty heavily used around the 2000. Okay. Um, so I took her mom and I AI'd her to a bull that was like a national champ back in the nineties. And she had a blended genetics of current genetics and old genetics to get to the average genetics, because, you know, it, it balanced out those two extremes by taking about a decade apart. And I think that's why, I mean, her bull at the bull test right now is one of the top gaining bulls out there as well. You know, it's just, you know, that's just where, where she's at every year. Um, so but yeah, like I said, without the data, I would never know that, you know, that cow probably would have left before, you know, if I just threw him in a pen, I'm like, this one doesn't look right. Let's get rid of her, you know, without knowing that she's a high ratio every year. So how long are your bulls at the feed test for? So the bulls go into the test. Um, they're delivered the first week of October. They're given 28 days to acclimate because when you bring in 180 bulls from 60 different breeders, Someone's bound to bring something in. <laughs> okay. Um, so they are, uh, they're given a 28 day warm up period. Then they're put on test and it's every 28 days they're weighed. 
So they're on test for 112 days. At the conclusion of the test, they actually back them back down because they do not want to send out bulls that are going to melt away. You know, the, the bulls that did a little better, that have a little extra condition on them, they bring them back down a little bit. They're provided BSEs and um, everything. So the, the test sale is always this specific test, the Pennsylvania Livestock Evaluation Center is always the last Friday in March. So that's the one that you guys see a lot of data from. I haven't had the opportunity to send my uh, black Herefords to other places yet, but for the red Herefords prior to um, going to black, you know, I threw a bull calf on a truck and went to Midland out mm -hmm. to Montana, you know, I mean, I threw a freshly weaned calf on a truck, said, good luck, you know, and he went 1600 miles. He was actually the most efficient bull out at Midland that year. You know, um, I've tested at Wardensville bull test down in Virginia. That's a forage based test where, you know, they're just basically putting them on a forage ration. And we had the most efficient bull down in Wardensville that year as well. So I did not know there were forage based ones. So that's really interesting. At HI Slash Cattle Company in the heart of the Nebraska Sandhills, we have our spring offering ready to go. The bulls are thick, deep, and fed right. We know the saying, cowboys don't like fat bulls, but they'll sure pay for them. But we've also seen the industry-wide problems from growing bulls quick and hard way too early. Our bulls are never pen-fed, but out working on grass and walking to water with minimal supplementation. We know cattlemen need consistent performance that will add pounds to their calves. We know our bulls will do that. Our own cow-calf herd is our genetic proving ground. You can see our Black Hereford and Angus bulls at our website, hislashcattle.com, or follow us on Facebook. Yes, that was, a, that was an interesting test to go through because the numbers were a lot different than what yeah. I'm, you know, I'm used to seeing the three to four pounds a day up to five and down there, you know, when they're hitting around two, two and a half, <laughs> those are the good ones. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, two and a half on forage. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there are these testing stations out there and, you know, I think that's one improvement we can make as a breed. You know, we have, if we want to get a bigger market share and expand the consumer acceptability of our bulls, we have to be out in the forefront and have to be in the limelight and saying, listen, this is what we have. This is why you need to consider our breed. You know, because if we just kind of sit back and let the other breeds roll with it, the uneducated uh, consumers, they're just going to go there and be like, hey, I don't see black herpers. They must not be any good, you know, but I see a lot of Angus. So I'm just going to buy an Angus because they're here. You know, so if we could kind of band together and encourage performance testing throughout the nation, you know, if you find a bull test in your backyard that tests bulls, go ahead and send them a bull or two. Okay. Not everyone's going to turn out to be a, you know, something that should be pictured for an AI catalog anytime soon. But, you know, you have to at least give it a shot because anything we could do to promote our breed locally, it's going to impact the national picture, you know, because each little producer and that's the great thing about our breed is you know we have so many like producers out there that are doing 20 30 cows you know um it, it gives everyone a chance to compete essentially and we're spread out enough now where we can kind of um just really help each other out um and the the performance testing in pennsylvania where i do it it has allowed me like i said to 
double the price of my bulls. And if you look right now, there's bulls currently um, from the performance test working in South Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland. My bulls have gone everywhere. That would not have been possible had I not had the performance data collected because I would just be another no-name person out in the middle of nowhere that no one's really wanting to come get a bull from because it's too far to drive. <laughs> um, so that I believe that's one thing that has allowed me to go from you know just focusing on trying to sell locally into being someone that can be utilized to provide genetics throughout the larger picture. Have you gained some repeat customers as they've gotten to know you from the tests? Yes. Um, the yeah, bulls are usually, um, appreciated at sale. Like they, uh, they get bids and stuff. Uh, you know, we have repeat bidders. Um, but see the hard part is with only having five of them in the test and only offering three of them for sale, you know, um, sometimes they get up more than what some of the guys would have liked to buy them for, you know, and they end up right. going somewhere else. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I get a lot of calls about the bulls. They get, um, you know, you can kind of gauge the, the consumer's interest on the YouTube views and stuff like that. You know, historically, my black Herefords have as many views as any of the top selling bulls out there. You know, and um, I, I think really people are intrigued with the breed. There just has to get that little push to get them going. And once the ball starts rolling, you know, it'll probably roll. But um, getting them to see the bulls in person, getting to, to review the data you know, if we don't get it out there, they're not, they're not going to select black Herefords. So this is basically my effort to try to, um, enhance acceptability of our breed here in the Northeast, you know, but I'm relying on the people in the West and the South and, you know, everywhere else to do the same thing. And together, you know, we're going to make a breed that is sustainable. It's profitable. And it, it has the acceptability that we're looking for, you know, and, and you know, together we can do it individually. It's going to be pretty tough. We can only ride the wave of novelty for so long. At some point we have to be able to prove why our breed matters mm -hmm. and you can't do that without the data. So my hat is off to you because you've done this on your own, figured out how you were going to go ahead and get that information out there. And you've put yourself out there. I, it would be a little bit scary to go ahead and sign yourself up and, and throw your bulls out there and say, I'm going to see what happens. So really, <laughs> truly my hat's off to you for doing it. I'm not going to lie. Every time, every 28 days when it, there it's way day, especially the first way, because the first way, you know, if they got sick when they got out there, um, you know, that first way could be a flat out disaster, you know, um, by about the third, the second way you start to see where they're probably going to be. The third way is pretty much your, your gauge that's going to tell you if they're going to make the sale or not. And then the fourth way is just verification. Um, but no, I would, I would definitely encourage all producers to take a, a strong, hard look at it. Cause like I said, it can be humbling. There's going to be certain animals or individuals where it just does not work for, um, you know, when I sent that bull to Midland, you know, he was one of the most efficient animals and he was the first cobalt, even though he was the most efficient. So they, they took him to a different sale. It was the grass time sale. He's topped that sale, you know, but it wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, you know, five, $8,000 bull. He was like a $3,000 bull. 
But the data I got and the experience I got from sending them out there and just learning about how Midland does it versus how the Livestock Evaluation Center does it, that was valuable information and that was worth one animal to me. I mean, to tell you the truth, I think that bull calf was weaned nine days. I can't even believe it lived, you know, that trip. You know, I was like, I had my fingers crossed for the little guy. <laughs> but, um, but for the Midland test, for example, you know, they send a truck up the Northeast coast. Okay. I had to take the bull 20 minutes to a sale barn. I threw him on a trailer. I got that bull shipped to Montana for $150. You know, I mean, it's very economical to get the bulls on these trailers to get to these tests. You just have to correlate with the test. And, you know, that's why he was only weaned nine days. I kind of made that decision a little late. Um, and the truck was already coming. So we're like, good luck. <laughs> We had a similar situation this year, and this would actually be a good note for people. If you're looking for ways to participate in tests like this, starting with your local Cattlemen's Association is a great resource. Um, ours out here, the Sandhills Cattle Association, they put on a feeder and carcass contest every year. It's not a bull test, but it still gives you a good idea of what your genetics are producing in calves. And we wound up at the last minute throw in some calves into that, those things. I mean, we're talking weaned maybe three days because it was such late notice. But the cool thing about the one we've got going here is they then donate one of those steers from each lot to the local schools. And so you're, you know, getting that donation in there and you're getting all that carcass data back so that we know what our bulls are doing on the commercial cows you know, there are all sorts of different opportunities out there for you to test your animals and figure out what they're really doing. Yeah, and the, the bull test uh, centers as well, I should note this in talking to the guy that runs the Pennsylvania one, you know, I asked him a couple questions on the testing and stuff. And I'm like, what do you see, um, you know, the biggest benefit is, and, you know, he said the same thing, you know, it, it gives producers the measuring stick to measure within their own herd, have some care for comparisons outside their herd. But most importantly, for every one bull that they run through the sale ring, they've found that that translates into four bulls sold off the farm. Okay. So my exposure through the test out there um, at near Penn State, you know, by putting the bulls in there, it's 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 funny because you know, I only keep typically the five best bulls put through the bull test. And I don't usually keep bulls back here. I just send the best five because I feel if I wouldn't use it in my own herd, I don't want somebody else using it. So everybody else gets cut. Okay. The, the days following the sale, I typically have a dozen phone calls wanting to buy black Herford bulls. So that's where you guys come in. If I'm not going to keep them, I need to find somebody else that has them <laughs> because the, there's the markets out there. It's just like everyone wants to see first before they make the investment um, and they're willing to make the investment, you know, if they're educated, you know, this is my chance to educate them. And, and I think they're a hundred percent right because, you know, after the sale, I could sell a dozen bulls probably. I just don't have them because I only have out 25 cows. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of people that still are seeing us for the first time, frankly you know, are still going, wait, whoa, that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And every time we've put a bull out there, it helps grow that, that awareness. Yeah. And we have to like, not be blind to just our own breed. 
you know, that's very important. I feel, um, you know, I, there was an article in the, the black Hereford uh, magazine there. And it mentioned that, you know, I purchased a Wagyu bull. Okay. And so we're looking to increase our, um, products here, you know, our meat products as well, because we sell freezer beef and stuff like that. Um, you know, I feel the black Herefords, if in put in a terminal situation with an Akushi or a, a black uh, Wagyu bull, we definitely have like the genetic line that can really excel at that. So, you know, instead of breeding my, um, basically the lower part of my herd to black Herefords this past year, on an experiment, I bred in the Wagyu. So I'm going to have a whole bunch of Wagyu babies coming here shortly. Um, you know, I recently traveled to Tennessee uh, last week and I purchased some F1 Akushi heifers to put into the operation. Um, you know, it's not because I'm getting out of the Black Herefords by any means. It's because my like kind of quest to just test our operation and see, well, what can we do in this situation does, how does our breed correspond to other breeds? And, you know, we're, you know, when you don't have that many cattle, it's not that big a deal to raise a couple ones. That, the only, the, my biggest hang up is right now that everyone's not going to look the same this fall. And that might be an issue. I might have cattle OCD. Because <laughs> Wagyu don't look exactly like the Black Herefords do. So this ought to be an interesting test. <laughs> well, so we had a situation last fall where a neighbor who raises bucking bulls, one of his bulls got in with our Angus cows at, you know, just the right moment. And this fall when she was calving, sure enough, it, it you know, she's a nine-year-old cow, never had trouble calving ever. So just if we had to run her in and pull and we're thinking, what in the world? We have never had to pull a calf on this. And my husband's in there yanking and all of a sudden he says, I think this thing is white. And we pulled that calf out and we have decided to call it a charlongus because it has got to be part charlet, part longhorn. It's got spots and part Angus. And it looks so funny out in our herd because it looks so incredibly different. But boy, that sucker can grow. It's amazing. (laughs) It has all the heterosis in that calf. And it kills me because it's not uniform, but you have to admire it. Yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a road that bisects my farm. So I have cattle on each side of the road and we don't usually when one herd's on one side of the road, they kind of stay there for the summer and the other herd's on the other side. So um one side um got some ET work done and got AI'd. Well, that had the the Wagyu bull in with it just to clean up what mm-hmm. didn't catch. And the other side had, you know, the nice um black Hereford bull in it. And I always, I called my Wagyu bull. He was kind of like my Walmart greeter. Okay. There's a very big pasture there. He could stand anywhere. That bull elected to stand by the fence every day. He greeted every car that drove by. And when someone would ask me a question about the cattle, they're like, you have such beautiful cattle. What's wrong with that all black one? He doesn't look right. You know? And I'm like, yeah, he just would not stay away from the road. And he was out there from the center and you know, it was, it was kind of comical because everyone recognized that one, but they really couldn't tell me anything about the rest of the herd. <laughs> so how long have you been doing direct to consumer sales? Uh, I would say at least 10 years, probably. Um, you know, 
social media has made it just so easy to direct the market to the consumer. Prior to COVID, you know, it was a little tougher to direct market because people had options. You know, you back in 2019, every time you went to the grocery store, there was meat in the aisle. Okay. Then all of a sudden 2020 hit and you go to the meat aisle and there's no beef. Okay. So people had to realize, started to realize either, A, I got to raise cattle myself, which that's not always a possibility for their given situation, or I'm going to have to support the guys that do because I need meat. So like almost overnight, the direct marketing, like throughout Pennsylvania, especially just went through the roof. Um, if I wanted to get a cow, um, a steer killed right now, um, and wanted a USDA kill for, um, sale here and to a restaurant or a bar or anything like that, we're a year and a half out. Okay. Like I could not get a date probably for 2023 at this point. Um, you know, and that's because everyone is direct marketing and it seems to be, there's a big enough seat at the table for everyone because, you know, if, if I put animals on Facebook, you know, and I just put a price down per quarter, you know, the typical animals on Facebook for probably less than 10 minutes, you know, and you don't even really have to try to sell it. You know, it sells itself. Um, Right now, there's big premiums on, you know, your Wagyu, your um, Japanese breeds. That's another reason we kind of looked at this, just to diversify the operation. And, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, Wagyu breeders out there that are averaging six to $12,000 a carcass. You know, that's some serious money. If you, you know, if you're only going to raise 25 animals, you know, if you can start getting that, that's a big difference. Absolutely. We were one of those stories that started post COVID doing the direct to consumer sales. And it's a similar situation with the plants out here. You've got to have appointments on the book before that calf even is alive. You know, it's got it's appointment scheduled. And I started actually with ground beef in our area, just because that was going to be easier for me to get processed and to deal with. And I mean, post COVID, I was like a drug dealer parked on the side of the street, selling packs of ground beef out of the back of the car. And, you know, it was pretty interesting. It was all USDA inspected. I just delivered it to our community because it was a pretty hefty drive to the facility. But I think selling the meat itself and doing that correct connect direct to consumer sales taught me more about feeding than I ever would have realized. I I mean, I would have thought I knew what I was doing, but I learned more. And then that has translated to feeding our bulls, which, you know, obviously are not going to the locker, but it's a science. And before then I would have thought, Oh, you just go out, throw the bag of feed out, you know, she'll eat it. It'll be fine. And there's a lot more to it. And so that has been, I think, a very impactful learning experience that I recommend everybody does, at least at some point, is really, truly feed one out the proper way. Even if you're going all grass-fed, do it right because there is a right and a wrong way to do grass-fed as well. And eat it yourself, sell it to somebody because you will learn more about the quality of what you're producing doing that than you can from a lot of other things. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you that last question before I let you go. And I know you've kind of hit it on a lot of things, but what is one thing you'd change about Black Herefords? Okay. Um, well, I gave the, let's see here, a tough question to answer, but, you know, I'm going to go back to one of the topics I, I brought up in 
One thing I think we really need to change with the Black Herefords is the reliance on geographic proximity when selecting genetics. You know, um, just because a guy has a bull down the road and he has the equipment to breed doesn't necessarily mean he should be breeding. You know, um, yeah, he can get the job done, but at the end of the day, you have to look at big picture. Where is that bull putting you two years down the road? Because essentially that's the decision you're making at that point. Actually, a little longer than that. You know, to to move cattle around the country is very economical. You know, I've I've gotten some cattle truck the past couple of weeks. You know, I got a I bought a group of Wagyu up in um Vermont. You know, and it, it was like 200, 200 bucks a head to get them transported. They were bred cows. Um, you know, I couldn't run up there for that. You know, there's constantly trucks and trailers going around this country. You know, my bull that went to South Texas, he went via Tennessee and then he hopped on a trailer down there, you know. And, you know, it was Black Hereford breeders down there that made that possible. Okay. Um, so by working together with my fellow black Herefords, and that was something I never saw in red Hereford breed, you know, you were on your own and it was pretty cutthroat and, you know, you're either making it or you're not making it. Um, you know, when I got into the black Herefords, I got a call from a, a well-known breeder down in Tennessee that likes to talk to individuals. We probably all know who he is. Um, you know, the man called me up and he, you know, and if I say what he said to me, you'll probably definitely know who he is, but he said, who is Mike Sherman and how'd your cattle get so good? You know, you know, that was the question he had for me. And, you know, I, to be honest with you, I thought the guy was a little crazy because I've never experienced anything like that. And it's just so interesting with the Black Herefords, someone will pick up the phone and call me and I can talk to them like we're best friends for the past 10 years. And, and I've never met the person before in my life, you know, so, so that's what we have going for us. You know, the, the, the breeder connect connectivity throughout the nation is, you know, we're kind of entwined and we're all looking to do the same thing. So, you know, don't be afraid to go out there. You know, if there's a bull, if you live in Florida and there's a bull in Missouri, he's not unattainable. Yeah. It's going to take a little coordination, but, you know, don't settle for the one that's right down the road when what you want you know, might cost you $500 to get them to you. Look big picture what that $500 worth. It's going to be the best investment you ever make, you know? So I would say that's one thing I would like to see changed and just kind of don't be afraid to get out there and go get what you want, because that's the only way you're going to excel as a breeder. Absolutely. Well, you know, making that wrong decision that can take years and years and years out of your operation to correct. Yeah. When, if all you really had to do was, put out a post on Facebook asking if anybody happens to have a trailer going a certain way and your problem could have been solved. You'd really kick yourself later if you didn't do it. Yep. And don't just look in the black perfect world when it comes to transportation either. The bull went to South Texas. He rode with a bunch of bucking bulls, you know, because that's what they wanted in Texas and that's what we could get them a ride on. Um, so you know, look on the other sites. I constantly see uh, posts on the Wagyu sites about bulls, you know, or trucks going one way or another mm -hmm. from like Texas to California and back and California to Washington. Like trucks are constantly looking for a little bit of fuel money, you know, throw them a little bit of fuel money, actually throw them more because um, you need those guys to stay in business. So um, 
I couldn't believe how cheap it was to get the cows down from Vermont. And I, you know, he's, when he gave me a price, he got more than that because I need him to stay in business because I didn't have a truck big enough to bring that many down. So I need people like that in business. So, <laughs> so yeah, like I say, don't be afraid to get out there and get what you want because you know, the genetics you need are out there. The genetics you want are out there. Just take the time, figure it out some prior planning, you know, you can have what you want and you can be heading in the right direction. I would add to it too. Don't be afraid to sell outside of your own neighborhood. I had someone recently that I was visiting with that was concerned that they were going to offend the breeders of a certain area if they came in from outside and, and sold bulls in their backyard. And I told him, you know, you could sell a bull to my next door neighbor. And I would only be upset if I found out that you'd come all the way out here and not let me know you were here so we could see you. You know, do not, do not be afraid of offending somebody by selling a bull in their neighborhood, sell them everywhere you can. We have to spread those genetics around. We have to grow our genetic base. It can't be super regional. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind too, is you want to be positive over what everyone's doing. Okay. So I have my first homo black bull on test this year. Okay. I'm not a homo black breeder because my cows are red. All right. You know, so 99% of the bulls I sell are heteros, probably. Okay. So I don't go out and bash the homo bulls because I'm like, listen, my heteros are better than the homo. No, I, I support them as well. Same way, you know, I've used 64, like Thunderstruck with a 64% bull. I'm not someone where you come in and get a 95% bull because I don't have those genetics. You know, I appreciate what the 95 percenters are doing. I also appreciate a good 64% bull or an 80% bull. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever percent people want to raise, whatever uh, genomics people want to raise, it's fine with me because really there, our market is so vast and there's a seat at the table for everyone. You know, if we support each other and stick together, you know, the sky's the limit for this breed. When we start nitpicking each other's operations and trying to bring one end of the spectrum down, you know, the castle will crumble and it'll come down for everybody. So the more you can do to support your fellow breeders, you know, it's, it's really going to put us at the forefront of the beef industry. And, you know, without each other, we're, we're doomed to fail. Yeah. I, that a lot of that comes back to knowing your market and there is a market for all of these different types. It's just knowing which one you play into and which ones you don't. You know, we, I have been accused of bashing F1s and that's not my take at all. It's just knowing the market. We've sold plenty of F1 bulls. They've gone to, we sold one last year to a Corianni breeder because it's a different market. And we know that and they go to those different regions. And so it's just really about figuring out who that is for you and how you can reach them. Yeah. Yeah. And think unconventionally, you know, a lot of this marketing comes down to who can paint the prettiest picture. and let's be honest, there's some better artists out there than others, you know, when it comes to that, you know, some of my best bulls that I would have loved to get into a beef operation. I really think could have improved herds have gone to the dairy industry, you know, they're breeding a lot of Holsteins, you know, um, with our bulls, you know, and it's just one of those things. it, It comes down to just finding these niche markets and, not being afraid to step outside the box. Um, if you got time for a quick story, I'll, I'll uh, end with this one. Here. Absolutely. Uh, 
<laughs> there uh, early on in my uh, career there with the cattle, I went and saw this small, uh, little opinionated uh, cowboy speak from the, from out west there. And the guy, the guy was pretty funny, and he had a story. And if if you follow and all, you've probably heard this before. So, um, my first one of my first bulls was a cat Farrow bull from Farrow Cattle Company out mm-hmm. in Colorado. I went to saw uh, saw him speak, and uh, you know his his philosophy was different than anything I've ever heard here on the East Coast, and um, that kind of why I believe I got laughed at when I said I was using parable. But he had a story and it was the monkey story. And, you know, he said that, you know, this goes back to anything. You can relate this just about anything in agriculture, you know, and you can kind of relate it to, you know, just reading in general. Okay. So the way he tells the story is if you had a pen and had 10 monkeys in it and, you know, all the monkeys are in the pen and you put a set of steps in the pen, and hung a set of bananas above the steps. Every monkey in that pen is going to go for those bananas and walk up the steps. Well, in order for this story to work, you have to realize monkeys hate water. So when any any of the monkeys take one step or one foot near that step, you spray all the monkeys with water, okay? The monkeys become conditioned not to go near the steps because they don't want to get sprayed by water. Every monkey in that pen wants that banana up there, but they're afraid to climb the steps because they don't want to get sprayed by water. Well, over the period of time, take one of the monkeys out that's been sprayed by water and put a new monkey in. The new monkey sees the banana up there and he's like, hey, uh, I'm going to go grab that banana. He'll actually get held back by the other monkeys because they don't want to get sprayed by water. You know, as you keep replacing monkeys out of this pen, at the end of 10 days, you'll have 10 monkeys in the pen that have never been sprayed by water, but take pleasure in beating down anyone that goes near those steps. They don't know why. They were just preconditioned to do it. You know, and, and and we see that a lot in agriculture. You know, you do what you've seen and what you've told is right. Um, you know, and what Grandpa time, did a lot of the time. Exactly. We have three, or, uh, crop guys that spread triple nineteen every year, not according to a soil test because that's just what everyone's always done. I'm like, have you ever soil test? Nope. You just spread triple nineteen. You know, I mean, it's absolutely crazy that people, um, you know, don't think outside the box. You know and really go for like what's obtainable. And, you know, if, if they did step outside the box and look at it in a different light, you know, that's where the profitability is. And uh, farms that are profitable are farms that are sustainable. You know, you have to think outside the box and do things your neighbors aren't doing if you ever want to see, you know, to make it. And, you know, that, I know that was kind of a weird story, but, you know, that kind of got to me back then. So I started doing things that people weren't doing. And I started seeing immediate success. Um, you know, did I get lucky? Perhaps, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's just something that works for me. So, you know, um, if everyone's turning right, I'm the kind of guy that wants to turn left, you know, just to see what happens. So don't be afraid to get out to, to stick yourself out there. You know, yeah, you're, there's, you're going to take one on the chin every once in a while, but at the end of the day, you know, that's what it takes to be successful. Well, if you've already decided to be a black Hereford breeder, you've already agreed to do something just a little bit outside the norm. So why not roll with it? Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us so much time to walk through what it is that you're doing. And I think that this has just been such a fabulous conversation. Thank you.
not a problem. If, if anyone would like to speak at any time, my number's on the website. Feel free to reach out uh, and talk to me about anything because I think, you know, sharing knowledge is important and I'd rather someone not make the same mistake I did. So feel free to reach out if you need anything. Perfect. Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Hereford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh,